They're made up thoughts. And somewhere we have to come to a place that this is the road map. If you have a map from Russia trying to take you to California here in the United States, that map most likely is not going to get you there. If you have a map from England trying to get you somewhere here, or you take a map from America to England or Germany or France or somewhere else and try to use it, it's just not going to get you there. The Bible is a road map. It's a map of the life of men. It is a map that has endured down through the centuries. And many have challenged it. And today we should not be fearful to challenge the minds of those who are against it. And to take time and to study it and learn it. The church has to face that. And the church has not really stepped out to really do apologetics very much to defend because we don't have to defend it, but we do have to declare it. And we do have to state the truths that are in it. And I want you to know those truths. Even in Akron Lions Fellowship, we come with many different thoughts. We come with our uncertainties. We come being insecure sometimes of who Jesus Christ really is. And it's something to say with the mouth that he's Lord and then to live it out. To live it out. To live it out. He is the living God. He is the true Savior. He is God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for being who you are. You are the God who strengthens us from day to day. You are the God who has said that your grace is sufficient. And we are the people who must learn to understand that your grace really is sufficient for us in every season of life. You are the God who said that your word is life. And we are the people who must feed upon your word in order to have that life. You are the God who has made promises unto us. And you are the God who is the faithful God who will continue to carry out your word in our life. And Lord, we don't know what you're doing in this world, but we know that you're doing something. And therefore, Lord, we pray for those people where the earthquake took place where 2,000 of them have perished. Lord, we pray for those families, and we know that that is a Muslim country, basically, but Lord, we pray for them. We pray, Father, that Jesus Christ might become a reality. We pray, O oh God, you will show yourself the strong God that you are. We pray that somehow, Lord, you will intervene into the lives of those who are mourning and who have lost loved ones, that somehow, Lord, you would reveal yourself. We pray for the troubleness that we see here in America, all the shooting that is taking place and all the things that are taking place, all the 
floods that are taking place and the fires, O God. We pray, Father, that we would open our eyes and see that, Lord, you're the one who's doing something to catch our attention. Even the weather people keep reporting. They've never seen anything like this. They've never seen any. Lord, we haven't seen anything yet. And Lord, we pray that as your people, we claim that promise of what David said. That he's never seen the righteous forsaken nor a seed begging for bread. That your hand would be upon your people. Not that, Lord, we don't suffer. Not that we don't experience the loss of material things. But that, Lord, that people might see a hope in us that would allow them to ask why. Why is that hope? Why is that belief steadfast? Why do you continue to worship a God who has caused you to lose everything, who has caused you to lose a loved one, Why would you continue to worship that God and serve that God? Because we know you, Lord. We know you. And we know that, Lord, you do all things well. And that you do them, Lord, for our benefit and for our blessing. And, Lord, we recognize we are your people. We are your servants. You are the potter, we are the clay, and you are the one who's doing the shaping. Continue, Lord, to work in our lives. But in these latter days, Lord, give us the strength to stand for you. Give us the strength to proclaim your word, no matter what's going on in this world. Give us, Lord, the courage to say that Jesus is the way. And we'll give you praise in Jesus' name. Man wants to somehow recondition God and proposition God. and Wants to say to God, God, if, if you'll do this or if you'll do that or if you'll be like this or you'll be like that, we'll believe you. In John 16, Melvin was hitting a passage and one of the questions that came into play and Jesus was answering his disciples and he said the world will rejoice over my death. Why would the world rejoice? They rejoice because man does not want to come under the authority of anyone. Man doesn't want someone else ruling their life. Man wants to set up his own rules, his own standards, his own way of life and living. Man wants to control himself, not recognizing his life is like a vapor. He's only here for a little while, and then it's gone. A man doesn't believe, especially when we're young, that one day we will stand before an awesome God and give an account of everything we've done. And it's amazing. Is it a possibility 
that we're living in a generation that might not grow old, that might not grow old. And he even declared that in the latter days, they will still be marrying and drinking and doing all these things, not knowing what was going to become of them in the next day, week, or month. And we're living in such a time. Turn with me to Matthew 27, 39 through 43. I think we hit this lightly and want to go back over it as we go towards Moses in Exodus 33. And the woman at the well. But I want you to hear because what we're talking about again is how man thinks, his mind. And God has to deal with our mind and our thinking. So, in Matthew chapter 27, picking up in verse 39. I can get there. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads. Jesus is on the cross. He's dying. Insulting him while he was in the prime part of life, in the early part of his ministry is one thing, but now he's on the cross. Now he is dying. And they still insult him. They still hurl certain sayings towards him. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days? Save yourself! Because they totally misunderstood what he was saying about the temple. The temple he was talking about was his body. Not the manly made temple, but his body. You are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days? Save yourself. Look at their condition. If you save yourself under these circumstances, we'll believe. If you save yourself, if you come off that cross right now, we'll believe. And he goes on and he says, in verse 40, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. If you are the Son of God. If you are the Son of God. Still declaring their what? Their doubt. That he is the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. Now this is your religious group. And this is our religious group today. They believe but don't know what to believe. and what Because they don't believe, they doubt. And in their doubt, they mock he saved others they said but he cannot save himself he's the king of Israel let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him what is man doing Man is trying to change the condition. 
God says, believe on the one who has died for you and come forth from the grave. Believe on that one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Man is saying, no, you come down off that cross and you live here with us. We will believe it, that you are the Son of God. They want to change the condition. And man is always trying to change God's word and meet their own conditions rather than God's condition. And it is something that we're always fighting with mentally. Mentally. We're fighting with God. Mentally. Do I obey God or do I obey self? And that's the thing that we constantly struggle with up here. Who do we obey? Elaine and I were watching the football games yesterday, the colleges, and all of them, the stadiums were just packed with people, filled with people. And sometimes she would say, how many of those people you think really know the Lord? How many of them people are lost? How many will be going to hell because they don't know Christ? And yet, stadiums are full. We're watching the Browns that they're going to play today. And one man was telling by him and his club, they travel to every game that the Browns play, even out of state. They follow the Browns. How dedicated, how loyal. And I asked Elaine, I wonder how many Sundays does he get to church? But yet being that dedicated to a football team and have no dedication towards Jesus. We live in a confused world because our loyalty and our dedication and our commitment really demonstrates we don't love the Lord. We don't love the Lord. And it comes to that point that man has to be willing to say, God, and we're going to see that with Moses, God, I need you. I need you. I need you. And then we look at Martha and Mary. We're going to look at something that every one of us have to do. Make a choice. Make a choice. And that can be difficult at times. But here they say, if you come down off the cross, we'll believe you. Go over to Luke chapter 16. Because God has given us something that either we discover salvation through this or we don't discover it. We discover eternal life through this or we miss the boat. It's not about whether if I'm intelligent, if I'm rich, if I'm this or if I'm that. It's about really wanting to know the Lord. In that verse 27, the rich man and the beggar, he says, he answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them. In other words, what the man is really saying, I have five brothers, and we all think pretty similar. And they're going to miss it too. 
We're well off. Yes, we we are a wealthy family. We are a, a, a notable family. We're very noble in the community, and we're highly respected. But Lord, here I am in hell, and Lazarus is in paradise. Send him back. Send him back to warn my brothers not to come to this place. If God was to send a relative of yours back to you to witness to you, you would not believe. You would think you were having a nervous breakdown. You would give all kind of examples or excuses about it. But you would not believe what they were sharing with you. He goes on, he says, in 29, look at the answer. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets, let them listen to them. What is, what, what is he saying? They got the books of Moses, and they got the books of the prophets. Let them hear them. Let them read and study Moses and the prophets. And in them, they can find eternal life. In them, they can find a way not to come to this place. In them, they will hear of the one who is yet to come, the Messiah, and they will find eternity in him. And God has given us this Bible that we might discover him, that we might know him, and we might have eternal life. It's up to you and I if we choose to believe it, but he also gives us the ability or the freedom not to believe it. He doesn't force it on us. And when we say we believe with our mouth, remember Matthew 7, because he says, you say that you love me, but your heart is far from me. So the mouth can say one thing, but your life dictates another. And we need to understand that. And he says, no. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced. They will not be convinced. Unless you are in this word and you are studying this word and you have hid this word in your heart, you will not be convinced. It takes this word and the power of the Holy Spirit to convict you and convince you that this word is true. And today in America, we are more religious than we are Christians. We are more religious than we are Christians. We're believing in something but don't know what we believe in. And at some point in life, you're going to have to confess, Lord, forgive me. I really didn't believe. 
I really didn't believe. And somewhere before we pass on, that you would really, truly ask the Lord Jesus Christ into your heart and to be your Savior. That's something each one of us have to make sure of because nobody else can do it. Turn to Exodus with me. Chapter 33, and we're going to be there for a little bit because I want you to catch Moses here. We all have doubts. We're all not always sure. But somewhere we have to settle it. And somewhere we have to really deal with it. Do we really believe? Do I really serve him? Do I really love him? And we have to really be honest with ourselves. And Moses here is going to be very honest with himself. When we pick up in verse 12 of chapter 33. I want you to hear what Moses says because Moses is saying something here that, Lord, you've talked with me, you've talked with me, you've talked with me. But Moses also says, Lord, I didn't believe it, I didn't believe it, I didn't believe it. And it didn't change. The answer didn't change. But it comes to a place that Moses had to accept it. Moses had to accept it. And it comes to a place in life we have to accept it. Look at that verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me. Now, I want you to really look at that word. You have been telling me. You've been talking to me. You've been sharing with me over and over and over again. You've been telling me. You've been communicating with me. You've been drawing me. You've been talking with me. You've been sharing with me. Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people. Lead these people. Now, I want you to understand something. Sometimes I have a hard time, and I'm going to be a little bit here. Sometimes I have a hard time when me and Charles go out, and I'm buying three boxes of toilet tissue. And sometimes I say to Charles, maybe we should put in the bulletin, everybody bring their own. I don't know what I would do if I had a church of 300, 400 people and had to spend that much money on just papers. And here's Moses with 2 million people. 2 million people. And all their woes and all their problems complaining and feeding them, ministering to them. And God is saying, Moses, lead them. And the question is, how do I lead a million people? How do I lead 500 people? How do I lead this or that or so many people? And sometime in the pastorate, you understand men leaving 
from one pulpit to another pulpit every two years or three years at the most. And he said, God, you've been telling me over and over and over again to lead the people. Now listen to what he says. Lead these people. That's what you've been telling me. But you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Oh, Lord, I need some help. Who's my help, Lord? Who are you going to send with me? What team am I taking with me? What volunteers are there with me? Who's with me, Lord? You've told me to lead them. But you haven't told me who you're going to send with me. Who are you going to send with me, Lord? Who are you going to send with me? And what Moses is saying in a sense, Lord, I can't do this. I need what? I need help. Lord, I can't do this. I need some help. He goes on and he says, You have said, I know you by name. Okay, Lord, you know me by name. Understand this. God does know every one of us. I can't understand that. We can't figure it out. God knows every man, woman, and child on planet Earth. That's what makes him God. And yet we can't understand that. And Moses says, you know me by name. You said you know me by name. And you have found favor with me. Okay, Lord. I found favor with you. But what does that total up to be? What does that look like? Because I have favor with you. Because, Lord, right now, it don't look like I have favor with you because you're telling me to do something and do it all by myself. And you haven't told me who you're sending with me. And you expect me to lead two million people. Now, they're out of Egypt. And Moses has experienced some things. And Moses is saying, you've been telling me to lead them, lead them, lead them. I hear that. I get that. But who are you sending with me? Who are you sending with me? Who's going to help me? What I want you to see is this. Moses is mine. What's troubling Moses? What's holding Moses back from just jumping out there? What is grabbing hold of Moses? What fears are there? What is it that Moses is thinking about? I got to feed these people, clothe these people, shelter these people. And Lord, we don't even have an army. We don't have a military yet. There's so much they don't have. And you're saying lead them. What's the team? What's the plan? How are we going to do this? And yet you're saying lead them. Yes, you know my name. Yes, I have favor with you. 
And look at verse 3, 13, I'm sorry, verse 13. If you are pleased with me, now here's the honesty of Moses, and this is where a lot of us have to be honest now. Moses says, I don't know how. I, I just don't know how. But if I have favor with you and I'm pleasing in your sight, Lord, this is a humbling experience for Moses. Because Moses had to evaluate himself and say, I don't have the ability, I don't have the skills, I don't have the know-how. Look what he says. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways. Teach me how to be a leader for these people. Teach me how to speak to these people. Teach me, oh Lord, how to forgive these people. Teach me, oh Lord, how to be patient with these people. Lord, teach me how to teach the people. And Moses says, teach me your ways. Now, what is he countering? Lord, I want to know how to do it your way that I'm not depending on what? My way. I'm not dependent on my way of doing it. But Lord, teach me your way. And what he is saying in a sense My way would be wrong. Your way is right. And I want to know your way. That I can teach the people your way, not my way. Not what I think is right. Not the direction I think we should go. Not for me to call and choose, well, this is the right and this is the wrong. As I judge people. But, Lord, you have to teach me every step in dealing with these people and leading them. You have to teach me. And that was a humbling experience, but yet an awesome insight that Moses has of himself that I'm not able. I'm not able. I'm lacking. And I need you, Lord, to teach me to teach me. And man has to come to that point and in a way simply say to God, Lord, teach me. Teach me. And when you come to church, it's not Pastor Brown teaching. I'm hoping that you're praying and saying, Lord, teach me. Lord, you drop something into my heart. It's not Melvin doing the teaching. Sunday school. Hopefully that you are saying, Lord, drop something into my heart. We get so stuck on the person that we can't see God at work. We get so angry and upset with the person that we can't see God teaching us and ministering to us. And Moses says, Lord, teach me your ways. Teach me your ways. And then he goes on, he says it in this fashion. Look what he says here in that verse 13. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways, so I may know you. 
When you are learning God's way, you begin to learn the character of God. You you begin to really learn the real power and awesomeness of God. You begin to see God totally different when you begin to learn his ways and how he functions and things he allows, what he doesn't allow. When you begin to really see the totality of God and what scripture gives us, it frightens you, but it also builds you and gives you a confidence. The frightened come in in the area of what one of the great evangelists said, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. When you really can begin to understand God and that God does discipline, God does correct, and he does it all out of love. And he says here, boy, teach me your way so I may know you. I may know you. I may know you. And the more you know of God, the more you will declare him. The more you know of God, the more you know of righteousness. The more you know of God, catch this now, the more you know to leave evil alone. The more you know of God, the more of holy living you know rather than ungodly living. The more you know of God, you can look at our world and you can say, this is what man allows, but that's not what God allows. The more you know of God, you can see a difference in the way in which man manages and the way that God would desire man to manage. And he simply says that I may know you. But look at this also, this reminder here. Moses is putting on, and every pastor needs to remember this little statement. Remember that this nation is your people. Moses is declaring, I'm not the chief shepherd, I'm the under-shepherd. These are not my people. These are your people. Yes, God, I'm responsible for you, but you're responsible for this millions of people, these two million people. You're responsible. These are your people. These are your sheep. They're not mine. Remember that, Lord. And every pastor needs to remember everyone who sits under the sound of his voice is not his. But one of the worst mistakes we make is say, my people, they're not my people, they're God's people. And we need to remember every one of you have a chief shepherd by the name of Jesus. And Moses says, Lord, remember, these are your people. Now, who else does that include? That includes Moses also. I'm among the sheep here. And Lord, you have to lead us all. You have to teach us all your ways. You have to draw us all closer to you that we might continue to walk with you and to know you. Remember that this nation is your people. Look what God says to Moses, and I want you to really grasp this next part. 
because it's so important. When your mind is troubled and when you're worried and you're frustrated and you're scared and you're ready to quit and you just don't know what to do, there's a key here that is so important. God says, Moses, you asked, who would I send with you? You wanted me to know who would go with you. Look at that verse 14. Two things in this verse 14. The Lord replied, my presence. My presence. Whenever you have the presence of God, every demon in hell has to leave you alone. When you have the presence of God and you recognize his presence, there also comes peace and a calmness and a quietness and a rest to the mind. That the mind is no longer going through all this, what am I going to do? How am I going to do this? No, it becomes a rest in the Lord. He gives you a peace here. Well, that you can function here. Because as long as you've got all this going all up around and you're all mixed up and you're all confused, you can't function here. But he says, my presence, my presence. You ask, who's going to, who am I going to send with you? I'm going to go with you, Moses. I'm going to go with you. And if God is with you, you have the majority. If God is with you, if God before you, who can be against you? If God's presence is with you and you know it, you don't have to take a step back from anything. You're stepping forward because you know the presence of God. The second important word in that text is simply this here. He says, my presence will give you rest. My presence will give you rest. See, we don't get rest running away from God. We don't get rest over in sin. Sin is enjoyable for a moment, but we're in turmoil. Our minds can't rest. And we're just jumping from this to that to this to that over here. Over there. We're just jumping around everywhere. Why? There's no rest. There's no peace. Why? The only one who can give you the rest and the peace is the presence of God. I don't care what you're going through in life. It's the presence of God that gives you the peace. The presence of God that upholds you. The presence of God that strengthens you. And give you the ability to be able to do what he's called you to do. The presence of God rests you that you might function. Because if you're not rested in mind, you can't function well. And he says, boy, Moses, I'm going to answer this question. Then the Lord replied, my presence will go with you. Who are you going to send with me? I'm going to send myself, Moses. 
I'm going to go with you. And he says, and I will give you rest. In your time of crisis, in your times of trouble, in your time of depression, in your time of worry, my presence will give you rest. Rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. Hey, wait a minute, Moses, I just told you I'm going to what? Now, Moses is being real here just like us. God just told us something, and we're going to add something else to it. We come up with another question, another so-called problem. Okay, Lord, if your presence don't go with us, then don't you say, I just told you, Moses, I will be with you. Don't send me in there, Lord, if you don't go. But didn't I tell you to go? Didn't I tell you my presence would be with you? Now you're going to come back and tell me, don't send me there if you don't go. No. Moses and our human thinking, our human mind, our doubts, our frustration, and the way we try to figure out. And what does he tell us over there? Don't lean on our what? Our own understanding. And yet, what do we do? We lean on it. And Moses come back with that other question here. And Moses is saying, boy. And Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me? Huh? Moses come up with another. Lord, how will the other people out here, the other nations know We have your favor. How will the other people out here know that I'm a Christian and I have your favor? How will the other people on my job, how they respond to me, how will they know that I'm a Christian? How will they know, Lord, what are you going to do to somehow identify me and let the other people know I'm your child, I'm your saint, I'm yours. How will any other know that you are pleased with me, with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? What distinguishes us? What is it that really distinguishes us? What distinguishes me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. And what did Moses ask? Who was going to go with us? What distinguishes you from all the rest of the world is your peace, your joy, your way of functioning and the confidence that you have in the one you serve that gives you rest that you might function 
in a messed up world. That distinguishes you from the rest of the world. Because you have a hope that they don't have. You have a God who you serve that nothing's too hard for him to do. You have a God that is able to do the impossible. You have the one and only true God. And you have a God who empowers you and strengthens you to move forward. No matter what. Now look at the promise. I want you to remember what he said to Moses here. My presence. Go over to Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13. Five and six. Hebrews 13. Is it the same promise? Is it, in a sense, the same thing taking place? Look what it says in verse 5. He says, Keep your life free from the love of money. In other words, keep your life free from those things in this world that will hinder you from serving him. He doesn't tell you you can't be rich. He can't tell you, he's not telling you you can't have money. Some people interpret this as though, okay, to really be a good, solid, humble Christian, you have to be poor. That's not what that verse is saying. You do not love money in such a way that you think money will solve all your problems. You don't run after God as though money becomes the preeminent thing in your life. No, it doesn't. And he says, don't fall in love with money. Catch it here now. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. What does God want us to do? To learn how to be content right where we are, where we are. Be content. For every good and perfect gift cometh from where? From above. Be content with what God has allowed you to have at this present moment. He goes on, he says, with what you have, because God has said, look what God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. What did he say to Moses? My presence will be with you. I will go. What is he saying to us? I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Don't I feed the birds? Don't I feed the lilies out in the field? Don't I take care of this? Don't I take care of that? Will not I take care of you? I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I will provide what you have need of. I will take care of you. 
to understand the other principle of what God says also. No working, no eating. You don't eat unless you're willing to what? Work. You can't forsake one just for the other. But God will provide the work. But God's presence is there. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my what? Helper. Was he Moses' helper? Was he Moses' teacher? Was he the one who guided Moses in order to lead the people? I'm your present helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? And what does he do? He gives you rest when he takes away the fear of man and what might happen to you in this life. Now, I want you to go with me very quickly. John chapter 4. And uh, I want you to see the thinking here of what God has to deal with in a sense. We're just going to hit a couple of verses real quick. Because these are things in life we deal with. Pick up in verse 9. And this is with Jesus with the woman at the well. But one of the first things he had to deal with was simply this. We can say it in modern time. He had to deal with the race issue. He had to deal with the ethnic issue. Now, a lot of the ethnic people at that time may have looked the same in the way that they were recognizable or the way that they distinguished themselves was either by how they dressed, the clothing that they wore, or the coloring or a certain pattern in their clothing. Distinguished them from what tribe they came from, from what group of people that they were with, and so forth. It was the clothing that many people recognized that you were of this group or that group or that group. In that verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew. Well, like he didn't know he was Jewish. Jesus knew who he was. And I'm a Samaritan. And he knew that you were a Samaritan. It's not hard to understand that a white man's a white man and I'm a black man and this is a red man or this is a yellow man. It's not hard to distinguish that. We don't even have to even have that conversation trying to explain who each other are. But that's the first thing that he has to deal with because that's where her mind is at. And her culture or her society had taught her we don't interact with the Jews and the Jews don't interact with us. So the Samaritan, the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So two cultures have taught each other what? You don't socialize. You don't communicate. You don't do this. So the first thing Jesus had to deal with in her mind was her view of humanity, the prejudice, 
he had to deal with in order to even go further with her. And then, as you continue, it says, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him that he would have given you living water. Now, look at the observation of the woman again. Jesus tells her, if you really knew who it was, so what he is saying, you don't know who I am. And a lot of people really don't know who Jesus is. The shameful part about it, a lot of people who say they are Christians and in church don't know who Jesus really is. We come more to church for the popularity of the church than we do of Jesus. And he says in verse 11, Sir, the woman says, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? So she associated the living water because water at that time out in the desert, it was between life and death. But look what she observed. You have no bucket. You don't even have a rope to put the bucket down if you had a bucket. You don't have nothing to get the water. And you're going to tell me, you're going to give me water and you don't even have a bucket or a rope to even let down to get the water? Her observation. Look at her mentality, though. First, he's Jewish. Secondly, he's not equipped to give what he says he's able to give. Verse 12. The big question. Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and his herds? The mind compares him with what? With Jacob. You know, there's a lot of people that compare Jesus with some other historical figure. And they read other historical figures. And they mix up what they're reading about other historical figures or what other historical figures have said. And compare it with what Jesus. The problem is, all those historical figures have died most of those historical figures, they've lost their influence, and yet the influence of God's word is still going forth. And don't kid yourself, because it may look like it's dying in America, look at the rest of the world that is catching fire for Jesus. Especially in Africa. India even in China. And she says, are you greater? He had to deal with all that. And then when you get down into verse 15, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water. He got her to a point. And this is where we have to see ourselves. After dealing with the mind of people and the heart of people, 
people are asking us. Give me the knowledge that you have in Jesus. Give me the hope that you have in Jesus. Show me how to be saved like you're saved. Show me how to walk with Jesus in the manner that you walk with Jesus. Give me, give me, give me. He got her to a point in dealing with her mentality where she was hesitant to even give him water in the beginning that she is now saying to him, give me. He still ain't got no bucket. He still don't have no rope. He still don't have no way to pull water up. But somehow mentally up here, she understood at his point, he's not talking about the water in the well, but something else. And she said, give me. Give me. Give me. And at some point in life, as Christians, we got to help people come to that point where they say mentally, The thing is, you can't force it on people. If Elaine could save all Akron, all Akron would be saved. If she could beat them into subjection, she would. If she could give them something to drink to make everybody eternally safe, she would do it. You can't force it. People have to say. The only thing you can do is the same thing Jesus did with the woman at the well. He went out of his way, in a sense, to make his presence known. And all you have to be willing to do sometimes is make your presence known. You don't have to force anything. You are just there. And if you're there, God is there. Because my presence will go with you and you and you and you. And if our presence is there, showing the qualities and the character of God, there will be that question. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for ministering to us through your word. Thank you for assuring us that your presence will be with us. And you will give us rest from a weary world. That you will give us confidence, Lord, to be who we are in Christ. And we thank you, Lord, that yes, you are the one who deals with the confused mind. You're the one who deals with the troubled mind. You're the one who deals with the disturbed mind. You're the one who deals with our minds every day and our thoughts. 
you're dealing with this one. Let us never be afraid to lead. Help us to never be afraid to go among people who may not accept us. Let us never be afraid, O God, knowing that your presence is with us. Your presence is with us. And you will distinguish us by your presence and by your character and by how you work in our lives. You will will distinguish us as your people and others will know there's something different about us because the way we live We are a distinguished people because of your presence in our life. Thank you, Lord. Thank you in Jesus' name. Jesus is the way.